Hello, everybody. Welcome to another amazing, beautiful, inspiring, thought-provoking podcast. This episode is going to be amazing. I always bring you incredible guests, but today I've got an extraordinary guest. I can't wait for you all to meet her. Her life story is amazing. Like It's a profound lesson of resilience, transformation, and just you seeing how God works you know, in forgiveness and restoration and growth and just bringing healing to people's lives. I'm not going to share so much about what this episode is going to be about, but I've got with me a gorgeous wife, a lovely mother, an amazing friend, a beautiful lady, Lucy Balimba. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you. Hi. Beautiful (laughs) intro. I don't think I've ever been introduced like that in my entire life. Really? This is new um, and I'm happy. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you for coming. I'm excited to have you. You look gorgeous. Your braids are amazing. Thank you. Please show them. Show them your braids. My braids. Mm. Girl, <laughs> I've got a person who does house calls, you know. I'll be me. I'll charge you a 20% handling fee because I'm yeah. an entrepreneur and life works like that. But yeah, she's good. No, you look amazing. I'm excited about this episode, by the way. I was going to tell the audience what it's about, but I say to myself, I'm not telling them, I'm not giving it away, but they have to stay tuned for them to know what it's going to be about. So to start with, though, how are you doing? I'm good. Are you good? Um, I did a check-in this morning and I was talking to my husband, you know, um, just before coming through. And I said to him, I'm feeling a little nervous. Perhaps maybe a lot. Yeah. And um, I'm grateful that he made me unpack it, right? And what I know about where I've been is that, girl, I can pitch to a Fortune 500 company, get a deal, um, get interrogated by a panel of 20 people mm-hmm. about my value proposition, right? Mm-hmm. But get me to talk about myself. It gets difficult. So, so, and I think one of the biggest commitments I made to myself this year was to, to do something brave each mm. And I know this feels like a simple moment, but it is so huge for me. It is. To honor a moment to come and just speak about my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling a bit unsure, um, but I'm also feeling so excited because this is the moment of bravery. Mm. It's a moment of bravery for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah. It does. So before we get into the episode, we're going to play a little game, this or that. Sure. To so calm us down. Sure. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Would you rather have a bad hair day or bad dye job? Oh, no. A, a bad day job? Dye. Hair dye. Um, look, I've had a really terrible experience with dyeing my hair, and I, I, yeah, look, bad hair day any day. You'd rather have yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, any I day. agree. I would have yeah. picked that as well. Yeah. Which are you likely to get, a speeding ticket or a parking ticket? Um, I am born again. <laughs> so, I had a really terrible time last year paying yeah. off all my tickets. So I would rather have a parking ticket, guys. Parking mm-hmm. ticket, you can negotiate, you can talk to people. Um, but I think also what I'm learning about um, urgency and self-discipline, and, and yeah. this is a point to your question, mm-hmm. is that when you are late, it spills off onto other people. So I never want the responsibility of making uh, a fault on the mm. road um, and having to deal with the consequences just because I was late, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's something I've really had to speak to myself about because I'm generally up and about and here and there. So girl, parking ticket any day. Anytime. 
I don't know. I think I'm always getting speeding tickets. <laughs> I think I'm in F1 every time I'm driving. Sure. Are you an early bird or night owl? I've just become an early bird. I'm so really? proud of myself, yeah? Look at you, um, girl. Girl, I'm week two, <laughs> 4 a.m., not even 5 a.m. club, 4 a.m. club. But it has been, again, mm. a moment of bravery for me, right? Just kind of doing the things that sometimes you shelve all the way up on your shelf, like yeah. in my kitchen shelf, I've got things that I probably haven't used and I just like dust it and then put them back <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, put it back. And I've just challenged myself yeah. to pierce myself into those moments a lot more. Mm. I wake up at four to join my husband for gym, um, but it's just been so edifying. So early Couple bird, goals. girl, I've just Couple qualified. Couple goals. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. qualified. No, I've just qualified. I tried it. I tried for one day. Yeah. It, I just, I know it's not me. I can work till midnight. Yeah. I can do things at night. Even meetings, work meetings. I wish people could set meetings at night because I can, I'm not productive in the morning. Sure. But you see, that's work. Mm. You have to do work in yourself yeah. to know when you are playing at your strengths, right? Mm. Um, and that's beautiful because it's an edit. It, you, right. You're basically seeing a very, very close friend of mine gyms at night. And it's because she understands what she needs in the morning. Mm. For me, 4 a.m. is not because I want to come onto a platform and tell people, no, girl, it's because I'm doing a brave thing. Oh. And I think seasons can be very iterative for all of us. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. So now let's get into it. Are you ready? Oh, I, suppose. <laughs> I suppose I'm here now. Okay, so, so you know, I'm surprised yeah. when you say it's hard for you to speak about yourself. Because the first time I ever heard you speak about yourself, you were so vulnerable to a crowd yeah. and you were so impactful at the same yeah. time. Sure. And I think when I was listening to you speak about your abuse story, I had so many mixed emotions. Sure. You know, I was like, okay, this is so sad because this is someone whose life was literally robbed off by somebody else out of their own selfish adventure. Sure. But at the same time, I looked at it and I said, there is a testimony in every test, and now God wants to use your voice, right? So I'm just really excited to have you share your story with everybody. Just share what happened, with who, when, and just, you know, be as vulnerable as, as possible as well so that everybody else can learn. Sure. I want to start with who I am. Yeah. So a few years ago, if I was on a platform like this and I was asked who I was, I would have mm. said... My name is Lucy Balimba. I am a communication strategist. Mm -hmm. I have done a lot of award-winning work internationally, mm -hmm. worked with JSE-listed, FUSI-listed companies, worked on signature deals. Um, I've done some really incredible version one things in yeah. my life. And, and I say version one because I realized not too long ago, actually, um, I, I just had a, a revelation that I've cleaved onto. Mm. Um, and that is to say, we have two versions of ourselves. So mm -hmm. when I'm sitting with myself and I look at myself, I have, I'm oscillating between the choice of choosing between the two. Mm. So version one is that outside of the cup self, right, that is fixated on, on physical accomplishments, communication, mm. on bettering self, um, and on speaking the speak so that people can be able to make sense of who you are in mm. relation to the world, power, impact. And all those things are great and they're honorable, yeah. right? Mm. They make us participate in society. They make us mm. who we are, you know? Um, so I would say that. I would tell people that I have worked, my, one of the biggest signature deals I've worked on 
is worth six, more than $16 billion, right? Mm. So I've worked a lot to build this aspect of who I yeah. am, right? Mm. But you know who I am today? Mm. I am light. Sure. Um, I'm a freedom fighter. Love it. I'm a mom. Mm. I'm a resourceful thinker. I'm a catalytic connector. Mm. Um, I'm simple. I love peace. I love edifying, um, playing the role of an edifier and being yeah. edified in my relationships. Mm. I am in a space where I'm so much more concerned about cultivating my inner life. Mm. I think more closely about this moral logic that says, Lucy, how's your heart? Mm. How are you feeling? How can you help you? What is God saying about you? Mm. And for the longest time, that perspective of myself was, was cleaved and clasped into this mouthpiece of silence. I was forced to keep quiet. I was forced to not believe. Mm. that I am important enough for God's gaze. Mm -hmm. um, I'm at a place this morning, I, I had a beautiful opportunity just to sit outside and yeah. I was like, yeah, I can believe that. I'm, I'm a wonderful idea in mm. God's mind. And, um, but it wasn't like that in the beginning. Yeah. Right. Um, so my story is that I was sexually abused from the age of four mm. right up until I was nine um, by a family member that my parents, you know, took in. And mm. I think, you know, with just the nature of um, how black families were structured, mm. I think post-apartheid um, generally has one version. We think about economic emancipation, but we don't yeah. think about um, the fragility of the family fabric. Mm. And how that became weakened. We don't think about the role and impact of abuse or um, fathers who are not present in, in, in our lives, etc. So this family member, you know, had a really fractured family life. And, mm. you know, my, my parents took, took both of them in. They were brothers. Um, and these things started happening to me. But here's a moment that I want to speak about. So I remember then, you know, he started abusing me at the age of four. And just shortly after that process my mom mm. sits my sister and I down mm. my mom and dad and they tell us about they we have the talk mm. right? so they have two versions of the talk the first version is you're young and you're told not to sit on anyone's lap not yeah. to be kissy with people not to say hi to strangers mm. but Naki that conversation happened to me after I was broken so sort of quite late as well yeah mm. so it felt you know how I want to create a parallel with it. The parallel that I want to create about that experience is the experience of, um, I have a Christian worldview, a biblical mm -hmm. worldview, I'm a Christian, is the experience of the Garden of Eden. Mm. When Adam and Eve had, you know, broken the rule mm. um, and, and eaten the, f the forbidden fruit, one of the first questions that God asked them was, mm. where are you? Yeah. And not because... God couldn't see them. I think mm. the idea that God couldn't see them um, deletes God's omnipotence. He's all-seeing. So mm. you could see them physically. Yeah. But there was a level of broken communion. Mm. They were not connected anymore because mm. sin crept in. Mm -hmm. And I think the same happens with pain and brokenness. We adopt shame 
And shame separates us from the truth of who we really are. Mm. So when my parents sat me down mm. to tell me that this thing is wrong, unfortunately, I started believing that I was wrong. Mm. Um, I had adopted and cleaved onto this false identity mm. of the shame of what was happening to me. And, and, and just also qualifying this, for me, God creates, yeah. but the devil distorts. And I think I started moving away from the, this, this image, this beautiful idea of God in God's mind, this, this whole wholesome, healthy um, young girl with a ramp to grow. Mm. And I started believing the distorted and, and, and this, this broken aspect of, of, of what this man was telling me I was what my pain was telling me I was, you know. So so I did. I married a false identity mm. um, and the false belief and the lie that comes with being broken for many years. Mm. So it stopped at the age of nine, but already I, I, I stopped playing Mugosha. Mm. I don't know how to explain Mugosha in any other way. The, the stocking game, mm. right, where, you know, two people will kind of, hold poles on either mm-hmm. side and then mm-hmm. you start jumping and and just anything that is just like free and frivolous yeah. I started to really um imprison myself mm. from a perspective a self-perception perspective but also just feeling like if I jump high enough people are gonna see mm. you know I remember dreaming and fantasizing about underwear mm. um that has a lock you know and I'd be five and praying um to God vehemently and you're only five at that time and 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 just God if you could just create this like this you know but you know like okay maybe whilst you're still there how how did the conversation start what was the initial conversation like did it any any like I'm just wondering at any point did it feel normal to you because you know how in our society like you're saying there's a point where your parents then started sitting with you and speaking to you about sex right and Growing up, it was such a taboo to speak about it. And it's even more um, disturbing Mm -hmm. to end up finding out about sex or having the knowledge from an aspect of abuse as well. So initially when it started at four, did it seem very normal to you or did you feel like it was wrong still? Sure. Oh, before the conversation, Mm. right? It is such an interesting... You're taking me to a very interesting place Mm. because the truth to that answer is... Something inside of me knew it was wrong. This was wrong. Mm. I didn't have to be told I'll be killed. I didn't have to be threatened to know that it felt like something broke inside of me. Sure. And I was submerged into this deep vault of shame. Mm. But I couldn't, I, I didn't have the emotional vocabulary to unpack it, to explain it. And to make myself feel like it's not my fault. Mm. So all of that just clubbed into this acceptance mm. of I'm, I do shameful things because I allowed it to happen. And when my parents eventually spoke to us about it, it was from a position of fear. And I, I have the greatest compassion for them because my parents, although these things happened, mm. raised us so well with the best intentions, mm. um, with the best that they could do, and the best that they knew, mm. it happened. 
sin crept in, abuse crept in, pain crept in, you know. Mm. Um, I think it was a very, you know, somebody said recently about mm. just the geopolitical landscape in Africa, right? Yeah. It's coup season. There's a mm. coup in this country, there's a coup here, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But at the time, it was almost like sexual abuse season. Mm. That was a time in the early 90s. I was born in 88. In the early 90s, where families were hearing about horrendous things, about mm. murder, domestic abuse, rape. Mm. And I think now and then I'd overhear my parents and get terrified, you know, mm. kind of listening to these things. Sure. And I remember they it, it was a knee-jerk reaction when mm. they called us into that room to tell us about what we shouldn't allow to happen to us. But I was disempowered already because I had already chosen to believe so, so did you at that point feel like you should share what's been happening to you? No, I was even more terrified. Mm. And remember, I'm saying to you, God creates. Yeah. Um, in our in our in our in our nature, God has created this pristine product. Mm. But the devil violates and he distorts. You know, the Bible says he prowls around like like a lion. Mm. And the one lion that I recognize in the Bible is, is the lion of Judah, you know, mm. describes Jesus in, in all his power. But it's amazing how the Bible then refers to the devil as something that is, that is like a lion. So it's not the truth, mm. but it is so similar to the truth um, that we're always at these junctures in our lives where we mm. have to choose, you know. Yeah. Um, for me, truth is the absence of contradiction. And I was already living such a violated and contradictory life mm. where I would go to church and would be told about freedom. I mean, lucky, I went to Sunday school, right? Mm. And typical Sunday school, it's, it's that um, mural of Jesus yeah. and kids surrounding mm. him. Call the little children to come to me. Girl, Jesus is a man. I was yeah. afraid of sitting on Jesus' lap. I was like, what sure. is he going to do to me? And I think I want to take you there and I want to take your listeners there as well to kind of speak about how abuse can fracture us. It can fracture our perspective, mm. you know, yeah. it can distort the truth. It, mm. it just, it can really violate our gaze mm. when it comes to self, looking at yourself, mm. but how you interpret certain things in the world, you know, and mm. that happened to me. That happened to me. I can imagine. I love what you just mentioned now in the sense that it's it brings us back to what I was going to ask you as well because obviously then this affected your relationship with God, how you view men, and it affected your whole dating experience. But maybe before I go to your dating experience as well, um, was... Was it forceful or did he, you know, like maybe you're a kid and he will lie to you about something. He'll tell you, okay, I'm going to buy this for you or something like that. Was it like forceful or how was it for you? Sure. So there are elements of that, mm -hmm. that time in my life that mm -hmm. um, I can't say I blocked, but I've kind of willfully reconciled mm -hmm. to not get to. Um, but what I know about um, the art of abuse Mm. is that it is compelling. It's yeah. persuasive. Mm. Um, I had a love for sugar, you know, you know things. You mm. know. But also, abuse is an invitation sometimes. It happens as an invitation. I yeah. think a lot of the times we think about abuse as um, 
a violent physical act. Yeah, generally we would. Yeah. Um, but even when you are being emotionally violated, especially at four, manipulated, mm. um, it's it's not easy to see and interpret that as abuse, right? True. I think abuse is like so um, and pain and, and 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 anything that is just that happens to us in that sense, right outside of our will. Mm. It can be so sick, particularly when it is. And I'm not scaling abuse, right? But mm-hmm. when it's a family member, because you've created a basis for trust. Mm. As a child, you don't know any better. Mm. If you're told that you're vegetarian, you girl, you will be vegetarian. Yeah, you, you just go with you what you're told. told. Yeah, if your mother tells you that, no, actually, you don't like pink, you like blue, you know? You will take it. Yeah, but also, um, I just want to talk about the importance of family as well, you know. Um, my parents lived through a transition in our time, right? They lived inside apartheid and living um, into the transition of coming out of it. Mm. But in the in, when I think about that context and what that looked like for my family life, my mother had a retail job. She would come home at 8 in the evenings, mm-hmm. tired, has to cook, no capacity. Mm. Because of just the nature of the system. And mm. she, she came from a really poor background at home. Mm. So she she's... um. She's one of my greatest templates for for excellence, for hard work, mm. for resilience, you know. But that was it. That's 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 the bit of my mom that we got, you know. But when okay. we did get her, man, on weekends, she was you know, fully present. She was there, mm. you know? So she had to create reinforcements in in the family structure to make sure that we are taken care of in certain ways. Yeah, and I think in in that light there were certain areas or, or blind spots that she couldn't look into because she just didn't have the, the capacity and the time so this particular family member had almost sanitized his behavior mm. um from a perspective of being liked <clears throat> a light bulb breaks and he fixes yeah. it oh i man, see he so he made himself useful oh my goodness he was a saint and sure. I think when you are a child and you are in the, the primacy of understanding right and wrong mm. and that getting taken away from you so early, I would look at him and he was a beacon and a shining example of what it means to be, to have integrity mm. because he would mop floors, he would take us out to parks, he he would drive us, become an au pair. He, he was all of these amazing things and and, and he would get adorned and sure. what was the age difference for it you know um probably about 12 years so he was a kid but oh, so he was you mean he was yeah, 12 he was a kid, right but in in that context as a four-year-old he was this towering figure of power mm. and Again, back to that Garden of Eden um, story. Remember God said, where are you? Yeah. Um, and then he said, you know, and then they, they spoke about how, you know, they're naked and they had to cover themselves. Mm. Um, but then he said, who told you you were naked? Mm. I was told that I wasn't worthy. I was told many things and I believed them. Mm. And, 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 and when I just look at four-year-old me, I see those fig leaves that Adam mm-hmm. and Eve used to cover themselves and they shame. Because yeah. that's what happens when you interact mm. um, with anything that is not God. Um, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. shame. Yeah. Right? Um, that's exactly what was happening with me, mm. you know, where um, I had already believed what was said to me. And the process of unbelieving that 
became so difficult because mm. I didn't have support. Remember, I didn't speak out. No, you didn't. I had this mm. um, illogical sense of martyrdom where I had told myself, and maybe this was what I was told, mm. <laughs> that if I told anyone that he would be kicked off into the streets because my parents had literally adopted him as parents. And, and I just felt like, but he's supposed to be my brother, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, we couldn't take time to unpack a lot of these nuances around, you know, why people keep quiet during mm. abuse, um, why they don't feel like the environment is conducive enough to speak. Yeah. But when I, a, abuse gets so intimately aligned with our identity, to undo yeah um to unbelieve what you initially then adopt as a primary mm. belief so i was well and healthy to really just to, to just relate to the dark aspect of who i am the girl with the secret i knew mm. i had a secret and but you just couldn't share it, it mm. because i knew how mad it would make my parents you mm. know um to to speak i suppose and look this is four year old me you know but did you ever at any point feel like your parents, because I know you mentioned your mom was busy and obviously she was trying to build a life for all of you, right? But there's also an aspect of, did you any at, at any point feel rejected or did you feel like maybe she could have been more present or my parents could have noticed that this is what's happening to me? Yeah. Or there could have been signs as well, right? Because yeah. I think sure. as kids, you start changing. You probably want to be alone most of the time. Um, you don't want to speak about certain things. You don't want your mom to see you naked or things like that. Did she, did you at any point feel they could have done better? Absolutely. Mm. And you know, like I walked around with this inherited resentment towards mm. my parents because truly, I mean, I'm a mom. I'm a mom of two amazing yeah. children. The expectation that you have as a child of your parents, mm. they are all-seeing, all-covering, yeah. all-loving. There are no flaws, there are no crevices. Mm. And while I was kind of just articulating my identity mm. in this void of brokenness, I used to feel this entitlement towards my story, my secret. Yeah. Um, and so there'd be times when I would just walk in a room and just feel like, oh, if only she knew what happened to me. You know, mm. she didn't protect me, you know. Um, but also my sister and I took time to also unpack because I have a younger sister. Mm. And one of my greatest fears, um, it was a retrospective fear. It wasn't a fear in the moment because mm. we were powerless, right? Um, was always, I hope that didn't happen to her, you know. We mm. literally had to have a conversation, you know. And um, I'm not going to get to into her story right because mm -hmm. this is about me today and and you know but it's so interesting how i also borrowed resentment towards her so there was a place inside of me yeah. that felt that if only they knew they would treat me better i was very hypersensitive to moments of rejection so um. if you forgot my name off a list or, you know, I, I just needed to always feel protected and, and, and reinforced. And, yeah. and, and I think as a parent, I am so aware of my shortcomings. Mm. That one day, my son and my daughter are going to be too, you know. But in this fragile state and stage of their lives, um, there's an almost 
complete expectation for me to be exactly what God would be mm. to me as an adult. And um, so I was very aware of um, what I would say were my parents' um, shortcomings in terms yeah. of protecting me. Mm. And I certainly directed the pain um, and also just some of the reasons for not being protected to them. Mm. You know? And it's work that I've had to work through. I mean, Nike, you should have seen me in high school. Like, I was perfect. Mm. I was so perfect. I one day woke up and mm. I, I, I decided, cool, let's redo you. Yeah. You have this big secret, you know, you don't want to mm. be seen, you don't want people to know this about you. So yeah. the only thing to do is be perfect. And, and I want to pin that, right, to I was 15 and we had, um, I think it's the Love Life Foundation. So they, yeah. have, they do a lot of sexual education, etc. Mm. whenever they came to our high school. And they started telling us about, you know, sex, sex um, how babies are made, um, but also just like HIV, how it's contracted. Mm. And at the time, we were kind of cruising societally um, between the shame and the education around HIV. Right. Mm. So you were either the person who looked at it as a, as a death sentence and I don't yeah. want you to touch me. I will never share a cup, um, or, you know, a glass of water with, you know. Yeah, at that um, time it was very stigmatized. Right? Like people were really, yeah. yeah, they didn't have the knowledge. Right. So there was, <laughs> yeah. there was that, like, a, you know, almost like the, the a, a bubbling breakthrough in education around HIV. But mm. also then the other side where there was a lot of shame and secrecy and, and silence around it. So then, you know, they told us how HIV gets contracted. I was like, ah, that's it. I've got HIV. You know, I, I made that decision. I was like, oh, So then man. you just assumed. It's not that you were sick or you were feeling sick or anything like that. Yeah. Just based on the conversation yeah. and what they spoke about, then you assumed that you also contracted it. Yeah, and, and the reason, the thing that edified my, my assumptions mm. was I was a sickly child. And I think when you look at it now, mm. you start to understand that I was I was going through so many tumultuous moments inside of me mm. um, with no support, right? Yeah. Um, so I didn't know that I had an allergy to penicillin. So I would get given penicillin every time I had a bronchopneumonia or a chest issue. Oh, or the neuria. So I have an allergic reaction. Mm. And I think generally a lot of women sometimes do have that and it manifests in different ways. Mm. So I would get maybe... Um, um, you know, a rash on my lips, and I would—that's it, shingles. You know, oh yeah, I, because then they're mentioning right, all the symptoms the to you, and, symptoms, and you know, yeah, that um, makes sense. And so I believed I had this thing. So I—I—I mm. I, I was at a at an intersection then in my life where I yeah. had to make a very brave choice to say, "Hey, there's Ngosi Johnson who was like the poster child on, you know." Um, the youngest living person living with yeah. HIV, and he died at, I think, the age of 18. So mm. I, I, I thought I had three more years to live. So I lived those years intensely. Mm. My relationships with my friends were deep. They were intuitive. They were, mm. I gave of myself because I was yeah. creating this obituary, right? I knew what the end would look like. Mm. It, it, would, it was going to end in shame, <laughs> right? Mm. And I almost took the control upon myself of the decision to control my life to create the space that I could own and finally operate around my mm. persona. Ask people who went to high school with me, not a strand, you would never see my hair, not, not a strand would be out of place, right? Sure. Um, I would want to be um, a prefect or a head girl. My academics were clean, 
you know. Um, I I was uh, I played in first team hockey from the time I was in grade nine, and all those things seem small, but as a little girl, those were the the pressures, the self inflicted pressures, mm. so that that made me feel better about carrying this life. Yeah, it sort of made you. So you started looking for perfectionism yeah. and started making sure that you've got all these things under your name. You're doing well in sports, you're doing well academically, you know, and everyone is also, you're getting all the recognition and all that. And that in itself is making you feel better about yourself because you're already covered in shame. So you want something else to sort of put you in the spotlight as well. Yeah. But can so I, I tell can, you what that did to me? Mm. What it did to me is that killed my ability to mm. think of myself or to imagine myself in the long term yeah. so when the rest of my peers were planning you know their varsity life I mean I was doing well academically right mm. um, I didn't have the ability to think beyond my pain mm. and my secret because with every passing year it got heavier it got heavier thinking about my deathbed and I remember my mom would always describe HIV as this thing like, yeah, you know, boys are bad. Um, and when you are sitting there and you're decaying mm. and pooping on yourself, you know, that's sort of like fear-based I think it's how it was being spoken of back then, right? to be honest. I think even as, as kids, I think it's only when I became older, I started understanding what it really is about. Because back then, it's almost like you share a mug, you've gotten it. You know, it's almost like even by a handshake, Lucky. you can contract it. Lucky. It was really bad. And I'm glad now people really know what right. it's all about. Yeah. So here's the thing that then happened mm. to me. I then went on to varsity. And mm. what, what happened is that the rest of my life after turning 18 and I realized yep. I wasn't dying, <laughs> mm. um, life then happened to me so I could plan and see good things for myself. But there was always yeah. a limitation, you know. And then... Because I was becoming more aware of myself, um, I started realizing more and more that I wasn't perfect. Mm. But the thing about managing perfection is that perfection erodes your perspective. It kills it. You mm. don't know how to think beyond the need to be fixated with mm. fixing yourself and being perfect. And things like varsity and mm. you know relationships, just relational moments with people that kind of cast a mirror on yourself mm. were hard for me to digest because what do you mean I'm not perfect? Mm. What do you mean I cannot have control over X and X, you know? Mm. But one of the biggest then moments in my life that happened to me um, was just I'm struggling through this thing and I'm convinced I'm scared to go and have a test done. Mm -hmm. um, and a friend of mine who I actually met two days ago, shout out to Lou, um, <laughs> say fine i'm picking you up we're going to the labs and we're going to yeah. go to this test i was like what do you mean like are um, we really doing this what do you mean you <laughs> yeah know, i already um was working already in corporate mm. at the time and um, my life is a tapestry of grace Nike. Mm. It's, it really is and we went went to the labs did the test um got a call the next day to come and collect my test results and i was ready i was just ready to like yeah to say i mean I, I knew this I knew, right yeah so I opened that envelope and I was just like, why are these people being so uncaring? Like, you're supposed I know to the sit rule, me the down. Law, yeah. Yeah. The law is that you're supposed to sit me down mm. and we're supposed to peel this envelope and you're supposed to counsel me. And, mm. you know, I was like, is this how people with HIV yeah. get treated? Mm. And and I'll, I'll speak about this thing around HIV because it's, it's not even a stigmatization thing. I think 
was a seminal moment in my life, right? Mm-hmm. When I opened that envelope and realized that I was HIV negative. I was stressed, not with relief, mm. but with a lot of fear because suddenly I had to rebuild a life, a new life. Yeah. And I had cuddled and, mm. and, and constructed my life around this lie mm. that the wound became more comfortable for me than the yeah, truth. True. I didn't know how to live in freedom, in mm. the freedom of knowing, you know, because all my life I had lived with the lie yeah, and I had given and fed the lie what it needed. But now cultivating a new reality based on the freedom of what is really the truth. Mm. It's hard and it's like you've been living a lie all this time and you, you almost feel like you were robed of joy of peace of happiness of everything that you could have thought your future would be because you've been living in this lie right and now it's almost like you have to come head on with reality and look at how much time you probably have wasted wallowing hurt in pain thinking this is who you are when it's actually not who you are you know you know so it has really informed my healing journey Mm. what you're saying right now um you, you, another thing that I have realized and adopted for myself and you belief is that God cannot heal what we don't acknowledge. Mm. So I was broken up until the time I was 23 when yeah. I was ready to face, do I have this or not? Mm. And that's when the healing started happening. And one of the biggest things I will encourage people who have gone through pain or abuse, who have gone through a moment in their lives where something happened to them, is to find a moment to acknowledge what has happened to you. Accept it. Like, just be honest with yourself and say, okay, this has really happened. This is how it made me feel. This is where I'm at. And I think it's only from that aspect you realize, um, I think I was listening to Stephanie Ike the other time, and she was saying, God wants us as little kids. We don't have to go to him as adults and say, God, I've got all this figured out. But it's going to him as a little kid, bare as you are, and say, this is what has happened to me, sure. but I'm not complete without God. And sure. God, this is where I need you to come in, regardless of everything that I've gone through as well. No, so no. it's good what you're saying that you had to come to a point of realization and say, this truly is what has happened to me. Because denial at times is what stops us from healing. Because you are not being honest with yourself. You don't want to tell yourself that it's true, I was abused. It's true, it hurt me. It's true, I've been living a lie. And probably being resentful to yourself, to everybody around you, when truly God just wanted you to come to him. Come on, you know? come on, right? So it's amazing what you're saying. Yeah. And also, what happens when you cleave onto a false identity? Mm. And just that process of kind of nurturing and feeding it, right? Yeah. It's a form of toxic rebellion. Mm. I really believe that in our genes and our nature, we were created to, to rebel against certain things. Mm. And I think that's why we see that throughout life, you mm. know, uh, or the lifespan of creation, there have been seminal moments mm. um, of productive rebellion against stuff, against apartheid, against um, needing freedom, against um, the emancipation of women in the economy, against mm. many things. So there is in us, um, God, God speaks of it as, maybe I would equate it to righteous anger. Mm. Um, but when we, decide to nurse and comfort a lie it is a form of toxic rebellion yeah. it's toxic to us i i then developed an autoimmune condition where i was just bleeding in the inside mm. 
you know, and, and things were happening in my body mm. because of because pain goes somewhere. The thing about pain, pain is loud, Nagi. Mm. It, it demands to be heard. If you walked out of these studios and, you know, barefoot and bumped your toe, your neurological system, your brain is going to send messages. Yeah. You're going to forget about this beautiful, towering body that you have mm. and everything else that you have. And you're going to focus on that one small toe mm. because it just demands to be seen. True. You know? Mm. And um, I think the role of acknowledging what is wrong with us, when you know what is wrong and when you can call out um, the thing, yeah. um, looking at that doesn't scare you anymore. Mm. And that's where the power comes from. I think there's a difference between guilt and shame. Mm. I think in our conscience, God has built in um, an ability to feel guilty when you do something that violates the yeah. truth of who you are. Mm. And guilt is progressive. It's, it's a good emotion mm. because it challenges your convictions. Mm. But shame? Shame. Yeah. I think shame is different because then shame stops you from even going before God. You feel unworthy, you feel dirty, and you just don't want to go before God. And yeah, I think shame is different. Look at I think it's very similar to guilt as well, though. Sure, the yeah. difference with guilt is you're blaming yourself, right? I think with shame, it's more like, yes, you might not have had control, but you just don't feel clothed enough to appear before God. That is so deep, hey? Yeah. Come on. And I think also shame is shame is an identity thing. Mm. It starts to bleed into our identity. Yeah. And then it limits our ability to move. Mm. Um, it cripples us. It does. But guilt says, this was wrong. Yeah. I'm going to get up and, you know, I think just the idea of repentance, just moving yeah. away and just turning around and continuing. Mm. Um, so I'm at a place now, like where I appreciate what happened to me. Yeah. You know? So actually, yeah, cause we drifted, you know, I wanted to ask you then at what point did you, um, gather courage to tell your family if you did, did you at any point? I did. I did. Tell me about that. I told them, um, just after that, you know, I turned 23 moment and going and realizing I'm not HIV positive. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I was so lost. I was so lost. Like I said yeah. to you, having to believe the truth after believing a lie for a mm. really long time can feel new and lonely and narrowing. Mm. And um, I had also just really met my husband, mm. you know, who didn't want anything from me, but he wanted... God for me. I, I don't know how else to unpack that. He, when I met my husband, he made me feel like I was loved, mm. not by him, but by God. Mm. And he almost like drew me back to God. The more I was just, just be besotted with this guy. Mm. He drew, kept drawing me away from him and to God, drawing me away from him and to God, you know. Mm. And I think the more, the closer I, the, the more I became brave enough to to be in God's presence as I am, mm. the more I became brave enough to look at my shame and not own it. Mm. But I didn't know how to undo. So I went and I told my parents, you know. Um, but there was also the part of me that was just like, Ish, now you have to tell because guy <laughs> looks like he wants to get married at some yeah, point, you know. So, you have to, so actually, because that's what I'm... to fix your family issues. Yeah, you, you know? have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so, so you told, told them. them. And um, 
they were broken. Yeah. They were broken in different ways, but it broke them. Um, just kind of feeling helpless, feeling like, I mean, my mom created an environment where our mm. friends were the ones who came to play at mm. our house, you know. Um, we didn't we didn't lack anything. We didn't need to go into the streets. I mean, yeah. you know, um, before we moved into the, the suburbs, before, yeah. you know, before freedom or emancipation in South Africa. But when we were living in township settings and that sort of thing, I mean, life was really free. You could just mm. go and play in the streets as a child. Yeah. But my mom intentionally cultivated an environment that was conducive enough for us to want to be home. Yeah. So imagine, like, I'm stuck and I'm in the place of my pain, mm. you know? Um, and this person is just so elevated and sanitized and I can't even speak against that. He's perfect. Yeah, to he's them a figure it's, of authority it's, yeah, in my life, yeah. you know? So it broke them. It sure. broke them. But it was also the beginning for me of understanding the role of support in helping mm. you to be productive with pain. Mm. One of the one of the wise people in my life, um, and I'm just, I'm privileged as she's my counselor. She she made this analogy about a, a, mm. a three foot pot. You know mm. the ones that the 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 cast iron ones that we cook yeah. with outside. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. strong strong ones. Yeah, and he says, what happens in a in a moment of abuse or what abuse does to us? It fractures us, right? Yeah. So. Perhaps you are still you are still the part, mm. but you don't have three legs, so you're kind of out of kilter. You're slightly out of balance, right? Mm. And all you need is support mm. because your ability to function as a part is still there. So you mm. can still mm. cook good food. You can still be burnt in wildfire and mm. live, you know. Um, but you just require enough support, and that could probably mean bricks to mm. elevate you and, and keep you in balance, yeah. right? And I think speaking to my parents did that for me. Mm. It gave me a space that made me feel seen and encouraged me even more to move away from the shame that I, I, I love had it. held on to. Yeah. And I totally agree with what you're saying because I think it's true when the Bible actually says the truth shall set you free because it's in our lies that we do get deceived. You know, it's when we we haven't said the truth that we are able to feel shameful, to feel guilt, sure. to blame ourselves and have all that um, unforgiveness even within us. The moment you put the truth out there, that's the time that you actually, that's the beginning of your healing journey as well. But I see we're running out of time. But I also wanted to know from your end, how did this entire journey impact your dating into your marriage and um, even just how you now want to protect your kids because this happened to you when you were four, right? So how has it sort of impacted how you are bringing up your kids and how you trust people around your kids and all that? Thank you for that question, and it's a hard one. Mm. It's hard because I continue to iterate Mm. in my journey of believing that I am healed. Mm. And I want to be specific about that because it, again, is another revelation Mm. that I've, adopted in my life um that generally this is you know kind of um talk that healing is a journey yeah i'm starting to believe that healing is a destination it is a destination Mm, tell me more about that it's a destination (laughs) naki because god speaks of it in past tense 
he doesn't tell us that he will heal us. He tells us that we are healed. Mm. Um, he, and he tells us how, by his stripes, you know, that the, that the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate work was done for us and that it, it is for us to be healed. Mm-hmm. And I say this specifically because I am finding in this journey, right, mm-hmm. of articulating um, myself as a mom, as a wife, as a woman, as, as somebody who is a productive member of society, I am constantly oscillating between the lies that I thought and the truth of who God says I am. Mm. And a lot of the times in my own journey, um, or in this destination of healing that I'm I'm, I'm healed, Mm. the problem is catching up to the belief that you are healed. Yeah. I've struggled with catching up to that belief. Mm -hmm. Right? Again, I say it, truth is the absence of contradiction. There's only one truth. And God was so specific about it. He says he's the way, he's the truth, mm. right? and he's the life. Yeah. And I find that when we are tardy um, about the truth, it doesn't have many versions, the truth, mm. you know, um, we begin to feel that we're not healed and mm. we begin to feel that the process mm-hmm. of healing, of, of believing that we are healed, Mm. is the healing or, or it is a signal that oh this part is not necessarily washed well enough mm. you know within us so i believe that healing is a destination and i mm. say that and i'm so deliberate about that and i i am unwavering about it mm-hmm. because if i didn't believe that i'd be worried about my kids day mm. in and day out i'd be worried about who they interact with yeah I'd be worried you know about an uncle who walks through the door a well-meaning mm. uncle who walks through the door and decides mm. to give my daughter a high five and because I have moved completely from wanting to live in, in the strife that comes with protecting a lie, mm. um, I've become, I have found so much freedom in believing God when he says it is done. Mm. Having that it is done perspective on life has turned around my ability to, <laughs> I was saying the other day, like, guys, I'm 35. It's mm. very recently that I've allowed myself to sit yeah. on God's lap and be his daughter. Mm. I was still afraid of sitting on God's lap, you know, yeah. because there was a broken ability to trust because mm. I still wanted a little bit of a peace that I could control mm. in life, in my relationships. My husband will tell you that, you know, like, I hope he does. I hope <laughs> he sees that yeah. I, I am iterating, mm. you know. And one thing that we don't realize is that we think that pain defines us, but we mm. don't realize how iterative purpose can be. Mm. When I was sexually abused, I was still meant to be the Lucy that I am today. Mm. The only thing is that what the, the impact of the abuse made me like shut, it, it shut my mouth into mm. this mouthpiece of silence, you know. But God created me to speak mm. and he created me to, to have a story. He created mm. me to, to have a way with words. And at the time, I adopted this image of timidity and brokenness and shyness Mm. and weakness. But the light motif of my life, the golden thread, the common point, is around speaking. It's just that when I believed my pain for what Mm. it told me I was, who told you? I believed that the self-image that came with it. But when I have now decided to leap into the excess and the 
freedom that I have in Christ, mm. the more I believe that I have a, a voice, that I have a story that, you know, and that, that has been the shift in my life and how mm. I parent, how I love, how I trust God with my kids, mm. you know? I um, hear you. It hasn't been easy. Yeah, I'm sure it's not an easy journey, especially after what you went through. But also, we've run out of time. I wish we could go. Um, you know, we've got a lot that we wanted to unpack as well. But I think um, just to close out, just a quick advice you would give to um, somebody who is going through it or a parent who could have a child who's going through it as well, just to close. I, I want to thank you for that. I find that pain is a language... And it's something that happens to us. Mm. Let's face it, you know, one of the biggest things I, or, or, or this image in my mind is of us, and God says, you're, you're, you're a piece of fragile clay in my hands, yeah. and I'm the potter. It can hurt. It can be sore, high pressure. That, that pottery wheel, I mean, it, it operates at about more than 1,000 degrees Celsius and mm. upwards, right? It's burning. You want to step out of it. You don't want it. I would advise you to acknowledge it. God cannot work with something that we don't acknowledge. Mm. Also, what we need to remember is that in the same way that Jesus went to go and resurrect Lazarus from the dead, yeah. he went there, and before he wept, he groaned. Mm. He looked at what sin was doing to the world, looked at everybody who was crying because of the loss of Lazarus, mm. and he groaned. I want people to know that Jesus looks at our pain he looks at the impact of abuse on our lives and he groans because it affects him. It hurts him. It makes him bleed. Mm. But also we serve a God just like he said to the man who sat on the mat for 38 years. He didn't look at him and cancel him. Mm -hmm. He asked him and said, do you want to be well? Yeah. And we are going to have iterations of that in our lives. We're going to have a turn at being Jesus who asks Naki, Naki, do you want to be well? Let me mm. help you. Or we're going to be Naki who admits to saying, I want to be well. Yeah. And I think we need to be awake to understanding how to create capacity in ourselves for mm. people who are going through pain. True. I totally agree. And I cannot add more. So on that note, we're going to say thank you so much, Lucy, for being an amazing guest. I've had an amazing time with you. And your story is certainly a testament of what God can do in people's lives. And definitely, I'm very sure there's a lot of people that are going to be impacted by this because there are a lot of people that have gone through abuse. Some are struggling to heal. Some have healed already. And um, I'm hoping to God that it doesn't happen to their kids as well, you know. So, yeah, thank you so, so much for sharing so vulnerably because it's a story that not many people want to share and it's a true reality too we don't look like what we've been through as well because look girl. at you girl, girl. Thank <laughs> so you. yeah thank you so much for coming through and everyone thank you for listening please don't forget to subscribe like share and comment and if you have any questions as well please put them in the comment section and let us know who you want our next guest to be thanks for watching until next time <laughs>